Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to come into this time. And I just pray that we would just reflect upon our relationship with you, reflect upon what you have done for us, reflect upon the opportunity to be in a deep and meaningful and purposeful relationship with you, reflect upon allowing you to transform our lives, to change us, to renew us, to invigorate us, to give us an understanding of the will you have for our lives. Lord, may we come to this time ready to receive, ready to hear, ready to act. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Have you ever thought about changing your life? For some, life gets boring and they want to change. Now, change could mean a new job, a new place to live, or on the conservative side, just moving the furniture around a little bit, right? But there is a man, and his name is Giorgio Angelosi, and he really changed his life. See, Giorgio was 87 years old, and he was moping through his life. He really felt like he wanted a change. He lived in a small village in Rome, Italy, with his books and his seven cats. His wife had been dead for 12 years. His only daughter worked in Afghanistan, and one day he decided he was going to really shake up his life. And so what he did is he put himself up for adoption. Yes, you heard me right, 87 years old, and he put himself up for adoption in Italy's largest daily newspaper. The ad said this, Sikh's family in need of grandfather would bring 500 euros a month to a family willing to adopt him. This ad changed his life. The paper decided to do a front page article about him. And soon after, inquiries poured around from around the world as far as Colombia, New Zealand, and New Jersey. He became a celebrity overnight. He went from having nothing but time to having scarcely enough time to handle all the requests. The types of people who inquired, well, one was a pop star. Another was a millionaire who offered servants in a seaside villa. Which one did he pick? Well, one letter stood out to Giorgio, and the letter stood out because every member of the family signed it. Father, mother, sister, and brother. He went to live with them on their ground floor apartment, taking walks in the garden, helping with dishes and homework. Of this experience, he says, I couldn't have chosen a better family. Maybe it was luck or maybe it was God looking after me. I don't know. I knew right away I had found my new home. Now, I don't want you guys to go offer yourselves up for adoption, okay? I don't want you guys doing that. But he got this inclination. He got this, this thought, and he acted upon it. He didn't want to keep his life monotonous. He had gotten bored with his life. You know, we make our lives monotonous, not God. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. 
God doesn't want us to live in monotony. God doesn't want us to live in loneliness. Remember what God said about Adam's condition in Genesis 2.18? It is not good for the man to be alone. And yet, how many people live lives of loneliness? They say, nobody knows me. Or people know my name, but not my heart. They know my face, but not my feelings. I have a social security number, but not a soulmate. No one really knows me. But they also feel, oftentimes, like no one is near them. People hunger for physical contact. This is the truth that we need physical contact in our life. Because of this, there's a group of enterprising New Yorkers who sell group hugs. (laughs) Yes, group hugs. You can attend a hug fest complete with codes of conduct. And yet there's a third aspect to our lonely heart, our life of maybe a little bit of monotony, when we start to think, no one needs me. The kids used to need me. The business once needed me. My spouse never needs me. Lonely people have the feelings of insignificance. So what are we to do with such thoughts? How do you cry with, uh, deal with these cries of significance? When there's people all around you and you, you feel like maybe you're not connecting in your life the way God really wants you to do. Well, people try to overcome their loneliness, their monotony in a lot of ways. They stay busy. They try alcohol or drugs. They try pets. They seek out lovers. They seek out therapy. And the sad thing is few seek out God, which is the one we should be seeking. And yet God invites us all to seek him. God's treatment for insignificance won't lead you to a bar or a dating service or a social club. God's ultimate cure for the common life leads you to a manger. Not just any manger, but the manger of Christ in Bethlehem. Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, when you think about Christmas, you have to think about Easter. And when you think about Easter, you have to think about Christmas. They are intertwined, even though we celebrate them separately. They are intimately intertwined. Matthew 1, 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Emmanuel, if you break it down, the Hebrew word Emmanuel means with us. And then you have the Hebrew prefix El, which means Elohim or God. This God, we believe, is not an above us God, or somewhere in the neighborhood God. It is a with us God. He's not a God for the rich or a God for the religious, but a God who is with us. Think about that for a moment. Maybe you say to someone, will you go with me to the store? With is such a wonderful word. It is a word of partnership, of friendship, of deep relationship. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, I am with you always. There are no restrictions in this promise of Jesus. He does not say, I'll be with you if you behave, or I'll be with you when you're at church. God is not holding back on his promise. It is just straight out, I will be with you always. Now, let's not make light of this. This is a profound thought. It wasn't enough for God to send prophets or apostles or even angels. God sent himself. As John 1.14 tells us, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. 
Many years ago, 1999, when I first took my job at my church in Long Beach, Tammy and I bought a house. Uh, we bought it at the beginning of April. My dad was going to work on it for a month, so we're going to move in in May. So our house was not livable yet. So I live with my brother, who had a, a little room, a little side room in Long Beach, and Tammy, who was about six months pregnant with Tiffany, was living with a two-and-a-half-year-old Tyler in Camarillo. And so for a month, this is how our schedule went. I would be work, at work on Monday. Tuesday, I would be at work. I would drive up to Camarillo Tuesday night. I would have dinner, spend the night in Camarillo. Camarillo. Wednesday morning, I would drive back to Long Beach. I would work Wednesday and Thursday. I had Friday off, and so I would drive back Thursday night. I'd be there Thursday, Friday. And then Saturday, we would come back to Long Beach from Camarillo. Tammy and Tyler would stay with me Saturday and Sunday at my brother's house. Then Sunday evening, Tammy would take Tyler and her back to Camarillo. We did this for a month. Now, you can imagine what this does to a little two-and-a-half-year-old, right? After a while, it was so hard on Tammy because she'd be driving home, and Tyler would be in the back seat crying, crying. I want my daddy! <laughs> Poor Tammy, right? Had to go through this for a month. See, the good news is we don't have to say, I want my God, right? Because God is not far away. God is here with us. In the manger, we see God take on human flesh to be with us. Christianity, this celebrates God's surprising descent. His nature does not trap him in heaven, but leads him to us here on earth. In the gospel story, he not only sins, he becomes. He not only looks down, he lives among us. He not only talks to us, he lives with us as one of us. But even more, Christ died on the cross to take away our sin. And so doing, he takes away our commonness. We can no longer say, no one knows me because God knows me. He engraved your name and my name on his hands and on his feet. I mean, listen to these wonderful verses. The psalmist in Psalm 56, 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not your record? Or Psalm 139, 1 to 3 and verse 5. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand before me. And yet there's more, right? 1999, right? No, not 1999. Free, right? God gives it to us free. There's more. When we place our trust in Christ, he places his Holy Spirit in us. And when the Spirit comes, he brings gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to you for the common good. God pre-packed you with strengths, and when you receive Christ, you receive even more. You receive spiritual gifts. No one should be lonely because God is with us. No one is depleted because we are funded by God. God has a spiritual adventure for you and for me. Did you catch that? God has a spiritual adventure for you and for me. 
But there's a problem that goes with this. And so let me tell you the problem. The problem is that we have poor eyesight. Now, I'm not talking about E-Y-E. -E. I'm talking about the capital letter I. The I bl sight blurs our view. It blurs our view from ourselves. For some, it causes them to think of themselves too highly, right? I'm amazing. I'm great. I'm wonderful. Everybody should love me, right? Everybody should look up to me. It puts ourselves in this high esteem. Maybe we're caught up in our position, our looks, our talents, or the things we can do. Whatever it is, it causes us to think too high of ourselves or to be too overconfident. It causes us to have a feeling of superior, superiority. Now, on the other side is, is the, the eyesight of the people who think they can't do anything. They think very poorly of themselves. They're always putting themselves down. They might even think that the world would be a better place without them. There are many events in life that can cause us to feel this way. Divorce, disease, loss of job, abuse, and on and on. Our world can beat us down. They blame themselves for anything and everything that goes wrong. These are the two extremes of poor eyesight, self-loving and self-loathing. And the truth is people can swing from one end of the spectrum to the other. There are times when we feel great about things and times when we feel down in the dumps. Good things happen, we're top of the world. Bad things happen, we're at the bottom of the pit. Problem lies in this. When we have poor eyesight, it becomes all about me. All about us. It isn't about God at all. When we have poor eyesight, we will end up feeling like we are all alone. Nobody knows us and nobody cares. The key then is to find a way to get to the center where we're not too high on ourselves and we're not too down on ourselves. How do we get there? Is it through therapy, counseling, self-help books? Well, at times maybe those things can help a little bit, but the real answer is worship. Worship is the answer. That is God's answer. Now, this answer might surprise you. And for many, they don't think of worship as an answer to too many things except what you're supposed to do when you come on Sunday morning and sing for a little bit, right? And that's worship, and that's the extent of it for most people. So why is worship the answer to curing our common life? If we participate in honest worship, it will lift our eyes off of ourselves and set them on God. Did you catch that? When we have real worship, it takes our eyes off of ourselves and it puts it on God. Psalm 29, 1-2. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Worship gives God honor. It is like God uh, giving God a standing ovation. And it doesn't just happen or it shouldn't just happen on Sunday morning. It shouldn't just happen in a church setting. Worship can happen anywhere, anytime. We worship with our songs, with our strengths, in our caring for others, in doing our best. When we live our life for God, in essence, we are worshiping God all of the time. Romans 12.1 says, Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. 
Worship places God on center stage, which is his proper place. Now, let me give you an example of this. In the Old Testament, King David and his men had just raised enough money to build the temple of God. This was the most successful fundraising drive ever, right? If you read about them, the, the amount of money and gold and silver and what they collected, it was astounding. Now, they collected all of these things. They collected all this money. They had the money they need to build the temple of God. They could have been overconfident. They could have been high on themselves. But David takes the proper posture and he leads his men to bow before God. And he prays this prayer. When David found out that he had enough to build the temple of God, Think about that. Let's say we're going to build a church, $30 million. We have this big building fund. We have one of those thermometers, right, where you watch it go up and up and up and up. And you get to $30 million. And you're like, now we can build our church, right? When they received enough that they knew that they could build the temple of God, this is the prayer David prayed in First Chronicles 29, 10-14. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Isn't that a magnificent prayer? A response, a praise of thanks to what God had done, giving acknowledgement to God. We hear phrases like, yours is the greatness. Everything comes from you. See, in worship, who we are and who God is, is put in proper perspective. Let me say that again. Who you are, who I am, and who God is, is put in proper perspective. And it affects those who are feeling lowly as well, feeling monotonous, not thinking their life is that magnificent. Worship can pick us up. Psalm 27, 10 to 11 and 13 to 14. The psalmist says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Even if my father and mother forsake me, right? Even if no one wants me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Can you hear how those words should lift us up? Could you hear how those words should encourage us and should cause us to rejoice and give thanks to the life that God has given us? This is what worship does. It helps us to see that it is about God. And so as we focus on God, then we can be more confident in us and the life that God gave us to live, and that God prepares for us to live. A few years ago, um, a couple years ago, my, my family 
and I uh, were sailing with my brother. We try to do this every year, but it doesn't happen every year. He has a boat that's docked by the Queen Mary, a um, little, little dock down there. And so we got on the boat, and we were just going around um, the harbor there. And as we were coming back, we are heading back towards the, the dock, he looked at me and said, do you want to steer the boat? And at first I was like, oh yeah, sure. And then I thought about like, uh, I don't, well, can I steal it? I don't know. Am I capable of doing it? And I grabbed the, the, the is it, what is it called? It's the, um, I don't even know the term for it. The rudder, well, that's the end part. This, uh, the, the wooden part that you hold. I don't even know the term. See, that's how great a sailor I am. <laughs> what do you call this? He would tell me. He would know, but I don't remember what it is. There's a name for it, right? The, the little wooden part, the little thing that moves the, the rudder that steers the boat. So I'm like, okay, I'm like afraid to move, right? And it was like, but you do have to move because if you don't move, then you know, you're like going to go straight in the rocks or something. So, so I'm like, okay. And, I, and he could tell that I was nervous. And so he said, okay, what you need to do is you need to look at a point. Fix your eyes on that point far in front of you and then just keep the boat moving towards that fixed point. I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. I mean, you know, like you move it a little bit and the boat turns. You know, it's like, okay. So you just like fix on that point and you go forward. And we got in, no problem. I didn't crash us and we were all good. See, the problem is that sometimes in life we take our eyes off the point, which is Jesus. That's what Lent's supposed to be doing, right? It, it fixes our eyes on that point again. See, when we lose that point, then we can get scared or lost or we make it all about us. Worship helps us to put our eyes back on Jesus, back on the point, the one who's gu guiding us, the one who's empowering us. Colossians 3.1, set your mind on the realities of heaven where Christ sits at the right hand of God in the place of honor and power. See, we worship God because we need to worship God. We were created to worship God. We worship God because of his holiness. We worship God because of his power. We worship God because of his tenderness. God has never taken his eyes off of you and me. And God says, don't take your eyes off of me. Keep your eyes on me, because he's always near. He, he wants us to be in relationship with him. That's why he created us, to be in relationship. He loves to be in relationship with us. He loves to hear our prayers. He loves to hear our praise. He loves us when, when we worship him all the more. And so, in closing, we ask the question, what do you do with such a Savior as this? And I hope you understand that the answer is we worship him, right? We applaud him. We give him honor. For our sake, we need to do it. For heaven's sake, God deserves it. This is what Ash Wednesday helps us to do, to lead us to a point where we worship God more, more often, more deeply. And when we respond in this way, life makes more sense because we understand what God has called us to do all that we want to know comes to us from God. So when we focus on God and applaud God and place our attention on God, we understand that's where it belongs and things come into focus much better. Let us do this each and every day. And then you will find that you'll have less days of feeling lonely or scared or lost 
or like life is monotonous. You will feel more joyful. You'll feel excited. You'll feel like you have more purpose. You'll feel energized. You'll feel like rejoicing that God has given you that day to live for him. Amen. Well, we're going to come to um, the placing of the ashes. And as we do this, I just want to remind you again why we do this. When Adam was formed by God from the dust, at one point he said these words to Adam in Genesis 3.19. He said, For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That verse reminds us that we are mortal, right? That we don't live here on this earth for all of eternity. We have a birthday and we have a death day. From dust you have come, to dust you shall return. But it also reminds us of our sinfulness, of our need for a Savior. And so when we do the ashes, that's why I put the ashes in the sign of a cross, because it reminds us that in Christ we have a Savior. We have one who loves us. We have one who has redeemed us. We have one who cleanses us. We have one who lifts us up. We have one who empowers us. And so when you come, if you would like to come and receive the ashes after we do the litany here, I will say, from dust you came to dust you will return. Live for Christ. So let's join together in our litany, the ashes of forgiveness.